Well, welcome. Welcome to We Are Arkansas. Um, today we're honored um, to have as our, our guest the Reverend Dr. Jan Nielsen at the Unitarian Universalist Church here in Little Rock. I'm the Reverend Steve Copley, your host for uh, We Are Arkansas today. Jan, thank you for being here today and uh, appreciate your time. I'm glad to be here, Stephen. Um, could you just share with us um, about your faith journey? Um, I, I know that uh, you you came later in life to the Unitarian Church. I believe that's correct. Tell, just tell us some about your faith journey and what brought you to where you are today. Well, thank you for the question. I actually became a Unitarian Universalist in college. Um, actually, it was my freshman year of college. I didn't grow up in any one faith tradition. My parents weren't members of any particular church or congregation anywhere. My father was very distrustful of organized religion, and he was the son of Danish immigrants and nominally Lutheran, if you will, and I was christened in the Lutheran church as an infant, but we only went to a Lutheran church maybe a handful of times during my entire childhood. My mother was an airplane pilot. That was her passion, and I tell people that the skies were her sanctuary, and she was a deeply spiritual being, though not a member of any particular congregation. This was back in the 1960s in rural Arkansas, particularly northwest Arkansas, and it seems like she would run into guys at the airport who happened to also pastor congregations. So we would end up at a little church here or there for a Sunday or two. Um, but that was, that was my introduction to church, if you will, as a child. My mother, however, was what I would call a universalist although I never heard her use that particular term. She really believed and lived the faith, the idea that all people, all people are children of the divine, children of God. And that's what I inherited from her in my spiritual DNA. I grew up in a very conservative area and went to a Southern Baptist congregation a number of times with friends and was actually baptized in the Southern Baptist Church. And after about a year, something wasn't fitting with me internally. And I just felt like I was in that particular time, in that particular place, I was hearing a message that was very at odds with what I had grown up with, this idea that all people are children of the divine. So I, I pushed that away and I left that thinking I really belonged nowhere in no faith tradition, although I didn't consider myself an atheist or an agnostic. But it was my freshman year of college down at Henderson State in Arkadelphia that I had a history professor who taught the history of civilization by bringing in world religions and also the history of Unitarianism and Universalism, which were two separate traditions at one time. And I remember being so taken with these ideas. And he died suddenly and unexpectedly in his 40s after my freshman year. I had gone to his memorial service at the college in the Fine Arts Building and looked at what I now know to be an order of service, and there was something on the order of service about 
the Unitarian Universalist Church. So I went to the library thinking, huh, Dr. Perry was a Unitarian Universalist and reading all I could find and realized that's what I always had been. I now, as you said, pastor the Unitarian Universalist Church here in Little Rock, and I just learned a couple of years ago that the minister who led that memorial service back in 1970 eight was then the minister of our church here in Little Rock and I am one of his successors. So that's how I came to Unitarian Universalism and that's actually the short version of the story. <laughs> so being at Henderson State yes. in Arkadelphia, how right. did you how did your uh, growth in Unitarian Universalism because I uh, was there a congregation at that time absolutely there, not and they're still not um, my journey into Unitarian Universalism was through the college library as I said I checked out all of these books and I also found some material from the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. And I learned that there was then a church by mail for people who are geographically isolated. And it still exists. It's called the Church of the Larger Fellowship. It is now online and by the mail. But I started getting their newsletters every month and I would read every word, the meditations, the sermons, the essays. And that's what what I did for fun, um, partially as a college student and later as a law student. And I wouldn't go to my first Unitarian Universalist congregation until I was a law student in Fayetteville. And we do have a congregation in Fayetteville. And that was the first time in my life I had ever seen a woman minister preach from a pulpit. And that kind of started my journey toward the ministry. So you, you mentioned uh, seeing a, a woman who was the preaching from the pulpit, and yes. you mentioned earlier the idea that, you know, we're all children of God, loved by God. Right. What else about the Unitarian Universalist tradition attracted you? Then and now, I love the freedom that it offers. We don't have a single holy book we look to the religious traditions of the world and to the sacred texts of the world. Yes, the Bible, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, but also other sacred texts of Buddhism and Hinduism, and also contemporary writings. Poetry is our scripture. And I have always loved poetry, although for a time in my life I pushed that aside as a waste of time. Um, but I've really become immersed in poetry as I try to glean wisdom that I can offer in our services. So I would say the freedom, the diversity of sources of wisdom, and also I would say the the ability to find one's own way in a way that feels real and authentic. In addition, the um, passion for social justice that has been a part of our tradition for a couple of hundred years. So they're really two strains, Unitarian and Universalist. Yes, that is correct. Can you tell us a little bit about both strains? Because in the early founding of this country, the Unitarian Church, many of the 
Um, some of our leaders, anyway, were Unitarian in their background and that played is correct. quite a strong role in the formation of the country. That Just is correct. Just a little bit about those two traditions. Absolutely. Some of our early presidents were Unitarians. Mm-hmm. On the Unitarian side, um, the the major unifying value or ethos would be the idea of the oneness of the divine and the application of reason to the reading and the interpretation of scripture and also um, a great involvement in social justice all throughout our country's history. On the universalist side, the idea of not only the oneness of the divine, but the idea of a loving God who would exclude no one from God's love and mercy. The idea that all people are included and that no one could be excluded. These ideas go back a couple of thousand years, although they weren't considered the the official church doctrine, these ideas never died. They came back to life in the Protestant Reformation, in the left wing, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. of the Protestant Reformation. And in this country, these ideas sprang up around the time of the American Revolution and continuing into the 1800s so that you had the Unitarian Church of America and you also had the Universalist Church of America. Very liberal Christian traditions that as they evolved began to look more and more alike. On the Unitarian side, as I said, you had the involvement in social justice, um, abolition of slavery, voting rights for women, public education, mental health reform, and also on the universalist side, you had involvement in all of those reform movements of the 19th century. These two traditions continued to evolve into the 20th century, and both traditions started to be influenced by humanism. Um, the idea that humankind can work toward a better life on this earth for all people. And those traditions also continued to evolve during the 1930s and 1940s, and it was by the 1950s that the youth groups of both con- of both churches began to meet together on a national basis. And also both traditions, quite frankly, had decreased in number um, from their prominence in the 19th century with the softening of Calvinism in some of the mainline churches. These groups decreased in number and both the Unitarians and Universalists were very anti-authority, anti-organization, and I think that cost both traditions a lot because they didn't have the organizational structure to see them through change. But it was in 1961 that both traditions came together and joined to form one tradition, the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, which is a very long name. But basically it means that each of the congregations are independent. We are governed by what we call congregational polity, but we are one tradition. And I I know as part of your structure you have a... uh is it a president? We do. We do. Who yes. is uh, elected? That is, is that correct. correct. That and, is correct. Um, so what what role does the and I guess I'm going toward the idea of the structure of the Unitarian sure. Universalist Church because sure. certainly the Unitarian Church in its roots was in the Northeast. 
primarily in the Northeast. What about the Universalist Church? Also primarily in the Northeast. Um, those traditions, though, expanded and extended beyond the Northeast, particularly in the 1940s and 1950s, particularly on the Unitarian side with what we call our fellowship movement. There was an effort to bring Unitarianism, what was then Unitarianism, beyond Boston and out into the western states. And it was typically a college town that would get a Unitarian fellowship, and that was true in Fayetteville. And, and true here in Little Rock as well. So they became nationwide. We are governed, yes, by a president and a board of directors, but those officials have no power, really, over the local congregation. The local congregation decides what it will do and how it will be, decides its vision and its mission, calls its own minister, votes its own minister in, decides what the religious education will be, decides what hymns will be sung, decides the liturgy or the order of service for the worship. The official structure doesn't have control over the congregation. So you might ask, well, why have it? And and what is the role of the president? The president is a spokesperson for the Unitarian Universalist Association and its congregations, a fundraiser, of course, and kind of a, a chief executive, if you will. Interestingly enough, um, we just elected our first woman president in our history um, just last year. Susan Frederick Gray. She is also a minister, but it was the first time we have made that move forward. Well, that's, that's exciting. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I'm an ordained United Methodist clergy. So yes. we have a fairly structured, rigorous kind of, uh, yes. and I'm not saying, I, I say it that way not to say that Unitarians don't. I'm curious how, if the local congregation is the kind of the nexus, how, how, what process do you go through for ordination and who validates that ordination? That's such a great question. And I will say that, you know, among Unitarian Universalist ministers, we jokingly talk about Methodist envy. We, we envy the organizational structure and so many of the great things the Methodist Church does. Our ordination process is actually very centralized. We have something called the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, and it's a rigorous process of preparing for and seeing the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, and it gets more rigorous all the time. There are extensive reading lists, and there are academic requirements, and internship requirements, and um, chaplaincy experience requirements. You go before this body of nine to 11 people for a half hour. You present them a short sermon, but they have a packet of material on you that is probably, well, if you printed it out on paper these days, it would probably be a couple of inches thick. Um, it's very extensive. And they can ask you anything they want on any of the reading material about your personal development and the things that may have come up in your multiple evaluations along the way. And they rate you on a scale of one to five, one meaning you're ready for ordination and two meaning you have more work to do and then the other numbers have certain meanings as well. 
but um, they are the people who officially ordain. Now, there's, there's a footnote to this, and that is because we do have congregational polity and because the local congregations can really do anything they want, a local congregation could say, we want to ordain Stephen Copley or Jan Nielsen to our ministry, and we're not so concerned with what that ministerial fellowship committee says. That is a possibility, and it has happened, but that person wouldn't have the the approval, the fellowship of the Ministerial Fellowship Committee. So when they would try to go to another congregation, they wouldn't have that um, sanctioning from the official body. So that's a complicated answer, but it's a good question. No, that's that's good. That's where I was headed. So the Ministerial Fellowship body is a national body? It is, yes. With some of them are ministers, some are retired ministers, Mm -hmm. some are lay people, some just all kinds of of people who have volunteered to give uh, dearly of their time and energy to help um, to help us have the best ministry possible. So we've talked a little bit about the structure. Um, how many Unitarian Universalists would you say are throughout the world? That is a great question, and I can't begin to answer okay. it. I can tell you that our official membership is around 160,000 adult members in the United States. We do have um, a scattering of small congregations around the world, but most of our congregations are in the United States. There are about a 1,000 Unitarian Universalist congregations in the United States. I will also tell you that when... You know, Pew or Gallup does a poll of religious affiliation. We come up with 800,000 to a million folks who claim that they are Unitarian Universalists, but they're not on our official roll books. So in Arkansas, I know certainly a full-time church in Fayetteville, one here in Little Rock. Yes. Um, are those the only two where they have full-time clergy? or That is correct, although Hot Springs Village is a congregation that's been in existence now for about 50 years, and they now have a part-time minister, a very talented minister there serving them. We do have a number of other small groups throughout Arkansas, but they're not yet served by ministers. And how do they function, like Jonesboro and Eureka Springs? Mountain Home. Mountain Home. Yes, and, and then there's a second congregation in Hot Springs, totally lay-led and totally lay-governed, totally lay-served. They do invite guest speakers to come and share a service. I'll be preaching in Jonesboro in a couple of weeks, and I've gone to Hot Springs Village and Eureka Springs. Um, So that's how they function. Uh, They do get some support from the Unitarian Universalist Association, not financial support, but resources, um, ways to lead services, religious education materials. And now that things are online, um, they can share um, online sermons, videos, and that's helpful. And and the election of the president. So is there a national body that Good you question. meet on a regular basis where you have delegates or yes. representatives? Yes, it's called our General Assembly. Um, General Assembly does meet every year. There are delegates from all of the congregations. Ministers are also delegates. And there is a, a campaign. Once every eight years, we elect a president. Um, that's how it used to be. We've changed to a six-year six term now. Um, But yes, it is a campaign and an election. This 
past time, we actually had a search committee recommend a candidate that had never been done before. And the search committee recommended only one candidate who happened to be female. And that was intentional on their part because we had not been able to break that gender barrier. And we had two other candidates put themselves into the race. So we had a race among three female candidates, first time in our history. Now, is there a, a, a state organization at all? Or? We have. That's a really good question, Stephen. We have what we call the Arkansas Cluster, and it's a cooperative group of the Fayetteville and Little Rock congregations, but also the Lay Leg congregations. And we try to meet once or twice a year to share ideas and share resources and to have speakers come out and help us know more about interfaith work or social justice work, for example. And and I know as far as within Unitarian Universalist, I have seen the, the hymnal, and it's rich with resources from all the various traditions you yes. mentioned earlier. Are there any other major documents that you all look to as major teaching, or are we talking about pulling from the various traditions that we spoke about earlier? Well, we pull from the various traditions, and as a minister, I feel like I it's part of my calling and part of my duty to, to read and to read a lot and to read what's current um, from the New York Times, the most recent poetry, that sort of thing. We don't have um, an official sacred text. However, um, we draw from our history, from the writings of Emerson, who was a Unitarian minister, and the writings of Thoreau, and, you know, our own history history, and we, we just draw widely. I even quoted from Howard Zinn um, a couple of weeks ago, who writes a non-traditional history of the United States. Yeah. Well, it's, um, and, and there, you know, and, and we as humans have this tendency, we, we want to put everything into a category. We do. So, you know, but we have the we have Christianity, we have Islam, we have Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism, and I've had law had had discussions with other Unitarian pastors, Unitarian Universalist pastors, who said that each congregation has its own identity, often as to whether and since it's predominantly U.S. based, whether or not it sees itself as Christian or something else. Is that pretty accurate, or that's somewhat accurate? It's also true that just as we humans change and evolve, um, the culture and theological tenor of a congregation of folks can change and evolve over time. And this is within the larger context of Unitarian Universalism. I've been active as a Unitarian Universalist ministry student and minister for about 25 years, and I have seen tremendous change and evolution, if you will, within our religious tradition. So it is true that each individual congregation has its own culture, but none of it is set in stone or in concrete. And I will say, too, that the historical roots of any one congregation will affect how it is today. If its roots were solely Unitarian, and we have those congregations, that's one way of being. If its roots are solely Universalist, Mm -hmm. And the church I previously served was a historically universalist congregation. That shows up in everything they do. If the roots of the congregation are 
more a part of the fellowship movement I mentioned earlier, more a part of the humanist era, that shows up in the congregation, but none of it is set forever. Well, Jan, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for being a guest on We Are Arkansas. And our tagline is because we're more alike than different. And that I, certainly amen to comes that. Yes. through in the understanding of the Unitarian Universalists. And thank you again for being here and being with us. Thank you very much for having me.